You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Before we get into the show, I'm on my honeymoon at the moment, but as soon as I get back at the beginning of February, I'm going on tour with my award-winning stand-up show. This is the show that got a load of, I mean, like three five-star reviews in Edinburgh and won the best new show at Leicester. It's a good show. It's called Like I Mean It, and uh, all of the details of the tour are at comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour. I'm going to remind you of all of the dates later in the show, but in a slightly faster way than I did last time. Uh, let's, Let's get on with it. Let's play the music. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. So welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is the second part of my conversation with the brilliant James Acaster. And for those of you who don't know him, I mean, presumably you've listened to the first part already, but if you've skipped ahead thinking, well, let's let's get the preamble out of the way and get straight to the nitty gritty, then uh, if you're not aware of James, he's an Edinburgh Comedy Award record holder. He is the only person to be nominated for Best Show a staggering five years in a row. But imagine that. What, like up for literally being one of the best comedy shows at Edinburgh for five years in a row with five different shows. Four of those shows, he is... Well, no, three of them and then another one. Um, he's about to release uh, on Netflix in one go. Bang, four shows on Netflix. I don't know if anyone's done that before. And he is one of the most original and hardest-working comedians ever to grace a stage. Now, in the first hour, we talked about his Netflix special and his autobiography of classic Scrapes, which is available now. And we did some nerdy technical stuff about writing. Now we're going to talk about the clarity of his comic voice, his relationship to his audiences and how that changes when he's under pressure, whether put on him by them or himself, and why he never sits down to write. So please enjoy part two, technically three and four of five, if you also download the extras of my conversation with James Acaster. I think you have a quality which has such a really, uh, so dynamic, but you're between two things on stage. And I say this on the podcast often about the performer being the most powerful, but also the most vulnerable person in the room. But I think in your case, you are a, and I I, I will, I'll splurge this and then try and tidy it up. Mm. But it's like you're a triumphant nerd. Like you, you seem to represent the voice of the downtrodden. You look like you probably were bullied at school. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. yeah, 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 right. Yeah. I think I know you want to yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You, you have a quality which is like he's the nerdy kid everyone remembers from geography class. You know, you have in slacks, in you know, dressed yeah. by your mum, that kind of quality. Yeah. Um, all of which you use to to make yourself powerful. And so I think part of the attraction of of 
seeing, not even copying James Acaster, but being an open spot, seeing James Acaster and going, God, I wish I had that clarity of voice. That's probably the thing like I'm most professionally jealous of you for having is the, the self-assurance. Well, there's the self-assurance, the joke writing ability and the clarity of voice. But it's the fact that you know how you will how you will respond to things. You know how you will respond to attack. On Mock the Week, if someone has it, Rob Beckett has a pop at you. We cannot wait to see you win because he's the loudmouth gobby kid at school and you're the, the, the downtrodden kid. So I think that's the quality as a young open spot, I would presume, is that you see, oh, that's what happens when the nerdy kid gets a voice, gets revenge, gets kind of self-belief. It's almost, <laughs> you might be Spider-Man. Do you, know what I mean? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like in any Spider-Man origin story, when Peter Parker is the downtrodden kid who then goes, wait a minute, I'm actually in control of this situation. Right, oh, that's interesting. Do you think? Do you yeah. does any of that resonate? I, know, I think definitely there's the kind of like definitely a huge part part of me starting to de- 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 uh, develop my own voice was going, oh, I'm not cool, and realizing that, which I genuinely didn't realize until I started stand up. Absolutely baffles me how I, I don't cotton on. I went through school thinking that I was cool, cool for some reason. Through but, all um, of your scrapes. Yeah, yeah, because actually yeah. some of those scripts, you are the star, the la 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 Humpty thing. Yeah, you, yeah. Are, you are 100% oh, cool in cool. the Mountain Goat's way. I can completely yeah, see yeah. that kind of like... I feel like the cool kid. But but um, but then, yeah, I didn't realise until I started going on stage and you get a certain reaction and you realise, oh, no, I'm this person and this is how... This is at least how other people see me. Sure, I'm this person to them. Yeah, and, and I definitely, as well, when I started out, wanted to be positive. So I was talking about... Uh, you know, little victories and stuff like that. And so I definitely, yeah, can see how it would all kind of grow from that. And um, the the persona has definitely grown out of all that. So, yeah, it makes sense what you said for it to come across like um, a triumphant nerd. Yeah, I think that would, like... That like, would, yeah, like sense nerd cause... isn't even the right no, but word like, for it. Yeah, you yeah, but it, it's or, or square or whatever. But, like, it kind of... Kind of <laughs> comes from definitely those two things were very early in the in my stand up you know realizing those are probably the first ingredients into figuring out who I was um yeah so the other element of it i think and it relates to that is something to do with anger i don't mean that it's suppressed mm. but you're not soft yeah do you know what i mean yes. you're you're a kind of Maybe you're a triumphant nerd who isn't going to take it anymore. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just to follow, follow that logic, yeah, yeah. there is there is a you are there is a steel to you on stage and off stage. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of the on stage stuff, it's something that I always find funny in films and things. Is when someone who has absolutely no right to be the most confident person in the room or so self-assured of themselves is. So when the dweeb character in a sitcom or something like that uh, is just walking around like they own the place, like they completely don't know that they're the dweeb. They think they're Zach Morris when they're Screech. Uh, just re- I always find it funny. So like I've d- deliberately done it on stage because I think it's funnier to kind of like, yeah, have this... Uh... But then there is, there is, yeah, I mean, you're right that there is an element of anger in it as well that I have to on stage you know have to know how to when to use that and how to use it and I find that when I get overly when I'm fully like in persona and stuff like that 
only a certain amount of anger makes sense. And uh, it's more channeling it through uh, frustration a lot of the time rather than getting angry. So, like, the end of a, of a lot of the shows that, I'm, that I've filmed for the Netflix thing is me getting frustrated and getting wound up by stuff. And there are bits in the show when, if I'm criticising... So like, there's a whole bit where I'm criticising, like, um, the British Museum for the Elgin Marbles and... Uh, there's an old routine from... There's not even in these shows where, like, a guy I'm on a night out with cheats on his girlfriend and I'm quite mm. judgmental about mm-hmm. him and angry about it. And with those things, I have to not... For one, I have to spend a lot more time on the wording and they get rewritten the most out of everything. So it's like that. there's the most amount of um, lines in there that, that work and I have to land it in order to to really win the audience over on that yeah it's harder for me to make an audience laugh if i'm making a serious point about someone else or criticizing someone else like you say like rob beckett Beckett having a pop at me is great but if i out of nowhere have a pop at rob beckett the audience don't really go for it sure because it's like why are you picking on why are you walking over and pushing someone else because you're not supposed to do that yeah um and uh so when i do do that in stand-up and i am angry about something and uh, you know, I'm not going to take it anymore or whatever. I still have to work into the persona. So with the um, apple in the orchard routine, which is, sorry, I haven't set that up very well. Um, no, but we, we actually talked about that specific routine. We talked about that last in the time. First, in the yeah, first so episode. I've, yeah, so I've already talked about that and that I have to focus my anger on that I get so hung up on a turn of phrase that that kind of becomes the... You can the, be unreasonable about the turn yeah, of phrase. because yeah. I'm kind of not addressing the thing head on. What Everyone knows what I'm annoyed about, sure. but I'm focused on this silly thing. Sure. And with the British Museum one, it's more on the nose. I'm more kind of going after what I am annoyed about, but I still have to kind of paint a more, not surreal picture, but a silly picture. When like, mm. you know, when the other countries are literally knocking on the door of the British Museum and asking for their stuff back and, you know, these and how preposterous our responses are and, go on about museum gift shop rubbers for ages and make that a secret metaphor that, that you then flip around on. But like, if, I think if I kind of went into it differently, and I did it you know, when I was writing that routine and trying it out, there were some gigs where I was just angry about it and it just didn't work. And, you know, have to, um, especially if, if I am, if I am doing the whole, yeah, cause sometimes I turn up and do a new material gig and I, and I almost forget to go into persona. I just do it as myself. And then certain routines work better than they do once I put the persona on it. And so, you know... Okay. So it, it's it's knowing that once that persona's on the whole thing, I've got to, I've got to be a bit sillier, a bit a bit more, you know, left... You know, uh, I don't think I've heard you talk about putting on a persona before. Right, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's you know, when, when the delivery... Just, it's just everything gets turned up a bit. So when I'm yeah. talking a bit more like, you know... Can you do it now? Can you? With all my heart, I hate it. Yes, I've got you. Yeah, definitely. Like, I'm, yeah, it's and that laugh when you just laughed at yourself then—that was both you and the persona. Yeah, right? <laughs> that was a mixture. <laughs> but um, yeah, when I'm being that guy, where like who's probably a bit further down the spectrum than I am in real life, and you know, just a bit more pedantic and. Um, uh, not supposed to be 100%, you know, 
ident you know people aren't supposed to identify with him all the time and you know that kind of thing um i just said him there oh god but, uh, <laughs> busted yeah oh, jesus but um but yeah when, when 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 i'm doing that certain things don't make as much sense as when i'm just being a person yes like the scrapes are all this a separate thing for that's me and just and they're not you know i deliver it still like you know a bit in, in my persona on the audiobook but it's still a bit more relaxed and a bit more like me and when i'm on josh's radio shows i am just kind of it's just me. I'm not really putting mm. on a persona because those stories are true and they work best when coming from the person that they happen to. Tell me about getting angry with the audience. I remember when yes. we were in New Zealand, yep. there was a particular thing, the tall poppy syndrome thing that yeah, really yeah. used to get up your nose. Yeah, I hated it, yeah. Talk to me about that. I think I, it's a problem that I've got to work on and uh, I sometimes am better... So, so much of it comes from tiredness. I notice it on tour a lot that it creeps in more towards the end of the tour than it does at the beginning. At the beginning of the tour, I can be on stage uh, doing the show and I can maybe see, you know, four people dotted around the room having conversations, uh, someone looking at their phone, someone with their eyes shut, you know, someone could heckle mid-gig and none of it gets to me. And I ignore all the people that no one can see who aren't paying attention. And the person who shouts out, I manage to respond to it in persona, keeping it into the show. And I come off really proud of myself that even though they shouted out, this is boring, you know, my response to it was to then deliberately then, then say something like, uh, OK, maybe you like this story, and then deliberately tell the most boring story <laughs> ever. That's funny, and that's what is more in keeping with the show and the world, and this person's criticism doesn't matter. And towards the end of the tour... You know, I'm halfway through a routine. I go, why are you on your phone, mate? Take, put, put, put your phone off. What, what, what are you two talking about? What are you two saying? Never a good, it's never a good question to ask. Um, sometimes it is. Sometimes they say something funny. And so that, that, keep, that keeps you doing it every time. But, you should, but I know I shouldn't do it. <laughs> Someone shouts out. This is boring. This is boring. Well, the fuck did you come then? Why are you coming to my show if you think it's boring? So it, it's all the... And I come off and I'm really annoyed about the show. And I... Well, um, my tour manager would back me up on this in the car. Even if for a little bit I let myself blame the audience, I very quickly go into, oh, I've just got to stop doing that. Why did I do that? It's all, and it's all, all on me. And it's all like, why? I, sh- I wish I hadn't done that. At the same time, um, I completely acknowledge why I did it. I'm, I, again, put loads of work into a show. I am, I'm tired. Someone shouted out that they thought it was shit, and and they've paid to see the show, and they're you know not being nice to me, and they've and 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 I, I get very insecure in those situations, and and feel like like definitely if I'm tired and it's towards the end of the tour, and the show's not going great, and I notice somebody talking, it's just a massive insecurity that they're you know what are they saying, what's going on, and so you ask them. And, uh, you know, often they'll give you some cocky response and then you I genuinely don't like that person. In the moment, I'm just like, I fucking hate this person. And also the audience can tell. And then I'm in that situation where the audience can tell. And so the only way actually to now get laughs is to acknowledge that you can all tell that I hate this person. Because, like, otherwise... I tried it on this last tour in Birmingham. Someone said something rude in the Q&A there's a Q&A section at the end it was an awful idea for me but like uh, someone asked a question and it was, it was like a it was a dig you know, about my appearance I can't remember what it was but like I tried to answer it in a nice way 
And then I moved on from it and I had to stop and go, you can all tell that I hate that person. <laughs> and, and, and then they were like, yeah, we could. And then that got a laugh because they were like, we can all absolutely tell that you hate that guy. Um, but then it was worse. And when I, when I said that, he was the one who laughed the most and he's really loving it with his mates. And that makes me really hate him. Uh, and also in the moment, I'm then frustrated that I haven't um, dealt with it, you know, as a comedian and, f- and made it funny because naturally everybody in the room thinks is on my side and thinks that guy shouldn't have said that thing. But they, the only way they can let me know and give me their support is by laughing. Which they can't do if they you can't haven't said anything funny. Not, if I'm then, yeah, if I haven't said anything funny. That's a I'm, really good way of looking I'm, at I'm it. annoyed at that, that someone. You know, they, they, and I've definitely had gigs where I've come off, I've really regretted how I've spoke to the audience and, and what I've taken out on them. So this is a question from... Uh, sorry to spring this on you. I think this is in, okay. in keeping with what we're talking about. This is a question from a listener called Becca. Yeah. Um, there was a show in Bromsgrove and the audience weren't... She, which she loved. Mm. And she said the audience weren't feeling it mm. and you seemed to get angry with them. Yeah. And you kind of... Were you running with the idea of them hating it yeah. as a comic device? Right, or right, right. to what extent were you really angry? Yeah. And how do you feel about that? Yeah. So... It's a bit of all of it, really. So, in, I mean, I don't, I can't, don't remember that gig. Sure. Because that's how often I do this shit. <laughs> that's how often I clearly derail a gig and get angry about it. But, like, I, it would have been that I would have, so I would have been genuinely not enjoying it. Um, and that wouldn't have been 100% their fault. It would have been that, again, if, I, if it was the start of the tour, then I wouldn't have, been as bothered with a quiet audience i've had good i've had gigs before where i've kind of like almost there's some gigs where i go in thinking it's going to be bad and i have a good time because i go in expecting not much and so i just focus on myself i'm able to tell myself before i go on stage just enjoy it and just have fun and entertain yourself and then i have a really fun time and actually if you listen back to the gigs i'm not getting many laughs but like I'm performing my material well and I'm enjoying myself and the people who were there to watch me and enjoy me have enjoyed it as well because I didn't throw it back in their faces and say you're not as good as the audience yesterday or some ugly thing that shows me in a very bad light in my opinion makes me it's unattractive um that audience so that gig you're talking about I imagine that I did genuinely not enjoy it that I definitely would have used hyperbole to explain. So I, I definitely would have said something like, I've, the amount of audiences I've called the worst audience ever are ridiculous. Worst audience I've ever had. <laughs> no, no, they're not. They're not the worst audience you've ever had. You, you performed in some woods where a man jumped on stage and started wanking. That's the worst audience you've ever had. These people are just quite quiet on a Tuesday yeah. uh, while you're doing your, your tour show. Um, so like saying stuff like that. Uh, and then sometimes the audience are into that and like it and it does become a comedic device, which I regret just as much because I don't want them coming back thinking that's what he does, that's the show, and then coming back and being like, oh, why is he not doing it? Or even coming back and wanting me to do it. So, you know, putting, you know, deliberately... Like, Lincoln, everyone in Lincoln thinks that's my act because I've done it consistently for five years. So, like, <laughs> you know, they will all think, that's what he does, he comes off... He, this year I enjoyed it more because I did a preemptive strike on them. <laughs> so I went on and just said, this is always shit. This is always bad. Lincoln always goes badly. And then 
I enjoyed myself a lot more because I made fun of Lincoln for the whole thing before they could do anything. And it, and it became a running joke. It became a bit of fun. And I was definitely cheeky and was like, you know, walking a thin line between genuinely pissing them off. But like, you know, they enjoyed it because like, I'm like, okay, I know Lincoln's always quiet, but it also doesn't mean that they're a bad audience. But I'm, instead, instead of going out and doing what I normally do, which is try and do the actual show and then get frustrated they're not going with the show. So, also, the things I get frustrated about are so silly because like, I get frustrated that they're not going for the subtle lines that always, even in front of a good audience, get a small laugh. Sure, but then that becomes everyone. a thing through which to judge them. But then I'm like, yeah, there's a line in my last show where I, I say, listen, I'm as bad as all y'all. And that, that, and that, that was all, and it would get like one or two people laugh a night, hardly anyone. And, and I'd say one in 15 gigs, everyone would laugh and it would be like a really enjoyable thing. And, but because of those gigs where it's really fun and everyone gets it, because when everyone gets a small little joke, it feels more special, especially to you as a comic. And we, we all connect over that. And we all, we all get why that's funny. So then when they don't laugh at that joke, which only works one in 15 times, and I'm not having a good gig anyway. It's weirdly that bit. So it's, it's, not, it's not like I do the banker. That gets not much. And then I have a go at them. It's that I do the line that is... Because it's more personal to me. It's my special line. I like it. And then they don't go for it. And, and then, you raise the standard for what you expect from them. Yeah, well, but also it's like... I haven't even raised the standard for what I expect. Because I, I, I even know that's a line that doesn't get much. Because it's more... Because the lines that don't get much often to comics are their favourite ones. I get more and I take it more personally when they're not laughing at it. And if I'm in a bad mood and like, or someone shouted something out anyway early on in the show or something's happened, you know, even a bad thing, I had a gig once in Hull and before I went on stage, you know, went on Twitter and some guy said, you better be funnier than you are on TV. And then I went on stage and was just instantly fucked off and in a bad mood already. And so when the show wasn't getting much laughs, I said, right, went on Twitter before the gig, saw this. Some guys fucking tweet this, and what's the point of even coming in? And then so it's like straight into that, and then there's people sitting there who are like, well, well, this is... I was actually enjoying it. I've gone to so many gigs and enjoyed them and not laughed out loud. Like, I... The the amount that I know that my behaviour is wrong in those situations is unreal. The amount that I don't make any excuses for it, I wouldn't back it up. I I can tell you why I do it. That's not making excuses. I can explain what's going on with me. But, like, I think, you know, the end... The kindest explanation I can give is that it, it is a very unusual job getting on stage. And, you know, obviously people tell comics all the time how, you know, they couldn't do it. And there are stresses involved with it. And sometimes I just don't deal with those stresses very well. And it's, I feel like it's, it's ugly when I don't. I feel like it's eggy, awkward, it's the opposite of what people come see me for as well. They're not going to see Sadowitz. They're going to see, you know, I'm not as bad as I'm not tipping pints over people's heads and stamping on their feet, but like, you know, I'm, I'm still like being unpleasant to people who are human beings. They've had their own day. They've got their own problems. You know, they, uh, they might have an anxiety disorder and that's why they're not laughing much or not making eye contact with you. I've had a go at people for that in the past. Just been like, what are you looking at the floor for? And all this. It's like, come on, man. Like, there could be a reason why they're looking at the floor. Don't have a go at them for it. You know, don't... And, and it's not like... I don't want people listening to this think that I shout at people and have a go at them. I'm not doing that. I'm not yelling at people. And But I'm, I'm getting distracted going into it and being a bit more uh, spiky than I normally would be. And 
definitely letting the audience know that I'm not enjoying it, which is not, doesn't help anyone, certainly doesn't help them enjoy it by me saying, I think this gig's shit and, and you guys aren't responding very well. Like I've, I've been to gigs before when like the comic has done that and I've been in the audience really enjoying the show and then get told like, yeah, it's not as good as yesterday, so it's just, I'm not enjoying this, it isn't as good. And now I don't mind when I see that I don't judge the comic for it, but definitely before the comedy, I was like, "What's their problem? I'm really enjoying this show." And you want to go up to them and tell them it's it was good. And do you think that is reflected? You mentioned earlier on about the insecurity. Is that where that comes from? Is that where that anger comes from on yeah. stage? That you're insecure about the value of what you're doing in a way that oh, yeah. maybe the next comic wouldn't be. So when you see someone look at the floor, yeah, I'm not suggesting I'm that next comic. I'm as vulnerable to that as the yeah, next person. Yeah. And also, it's. I, I that is, those are definitely my worst moments on stage when I get angry, and I can always congratulate myself if I, 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 <laughs> I had the sort of heckle that you might sometimes get yeah. in um, Saltburn, Saltburn on Sea earlier this year. Someone shouted out, uh, "What are you talking about?" Great. Which I think yeah. is a sort of James yeah, 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 heckle yeah. that I don't normally get. I think mostly what I'm talking yeah, about yeah. is sort of pretty self-evident. Um, what are you talking about? You're talking and talking, but what are you talking about? Sure. And I really was so... I wasn't having a great gig at all. For four or five minutes, I did really well with kind of gently taking him apart. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. in a way that I'm like, oh, that might be an Easter egg on an, on an yeah, album yeah. one day, because that was fun, you know? Yeah, sure. Um but I am definitely most vulnerable to, like, I'm breaking the contract with them by revealing that I'm angry. I think that's true of a lot of us. Mm. So if that is if that is rooted in an insecurity, mm. can you see an end to that insecurity? It's something you talked about first time you were on on the podcast, which mm. is years ago now. Saying I just can't, I can't ever seem to nail that. Like, mm. given that you're about to have released a a world first for, you know, for show. Netflix special, you're a world record holding number of nominees for best show at the Edinburgh Festival. What would it take for you to be confident enough in the value of what you're doing that you no longer suffered from that insecurity? I have no idea because... So I said earlier about... Like, I'm not insecure about the book. I'm not insecure about the specials that are going to go out because I can... They're a solid thing that's not going to change, and I know that I like them, and so it's fine. And so I'm never going to lash out at people who don't like it or whatever, because it's, it's going to be like, yeah, fine. I, 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 know, I know that it's good. And, and good is subjective, and it's my version of good, what I like. The live shows, though, from one night to the next, the exact same material can be a great show, and it can be a rubbish show because I've misdelivered it, I haven't done it very well, and because I'm not watching it. Like, when I, when I was filming the shows, I wasn't secure about them. I was feeling like, I'm fucking this up. That one didn't go very well. You know, I came off from the first... I, we filmed each show twice for safety and stuff, and the second time I filmed the first one, I was in my dressing room with my head in my hands, and the crew, you know, the producer and my agent came in, celebrating, going... That, we got it. That was great. And I was there like, I fucked it all. I've ruined it all. And then I, I watched it and I was like, oh, great, I've got it. That's great. And I felt good about it. So when I'm on stage and I don't feel like I'm getting the reaction that I want, I don't think... Like, no matter what happens, I always think, oh, this is a bad one. I'm doing badly. I'm not 
being funny and I'm not delivering this the way it's, I'm not doing this any justice and this version of the show is rubbish. This is a rubbish show. Not, you know, the show in general is always rubbish. This show that they're getting tonight is bad. And then that... So I, I don't know how that's going to go away because no matter how... You know... Nom- nominations and have never reassured me anyway. They've never been a thing go, well, oh, I must be good because of that. That's never, ever given me even a grain of reassurance. Um... The physical things like the you know the Netflix specials or the book do because I'm like I'm proud of them they're good, but right now on stage, I'm not doing them I'm doing this and this is shit, um, and I think I will never get over that I will never think that it's good all the time and have that confidence that this is good. What I can do to improve it and help myself is to be like it's okay that this is shit tonight. It's all right. Like, I've I've been able to do that in the past. And this year, it has happened a lot less because I've had the work in progress thing in my head. This is a work in progress. It's not finished. Learn from your mistakes, make it better. There's, you know, this is, I saw Chris Kent, one of my favourite comics at the moment, Irish comic. I saw him do the same show twice in Edinburgh because I, it's my favourite show that year. I saw it twice. Chris is someone I think would never have a go at the audience. I've never seen him do it. I can't even imagine him doing it. Um, and I saw him do... I saw the show the first time. I loved it. Um, I had lines that were my favourite lines. And me and my girlfriend at the time were quoting those lines to each other all the time. So we really, really loved them. And then I went to see it the second time. And those same lines didn't get the response they did the previous time. Um, when, you know, it had been the payoff for the whole routine. It got this huge laugh. And then he'd be able to end that routine on it and go on to the next one. It's a quieter audience that they didn't give it that. And instead of getting annoyed with them, or even instead of just going, well, just stick to the show, go on to the next bit, he <coughs> would, would riff, um, but within the routine, he wouldn't riff on the routine doing badly, he would you know, continue that train of thought that he was on until he got the laugh. And so I'd see him just like, you know, adding a bunch of tags, you know, where he's just continuing that, thought process where you know so the normal punchline didn't get that much so just continue down that road until you do find it and the audience would and he would find a new ending and then go for it I was like I've got to start doing that and I've been doing that a lot more since seeing him you know if I do a line that is normally the end and it doesn't feel like the end tonight well then tonight is not the ending and you've got to carry on and try and find something else and I'm not always succeeding at that sometimes I still get angry at the audience and uh, you know, show myself up. But, like, I think um, the key to it is to be like, yep, yeah, tonight's not great, it doesn't matter. Don't throw your toys out the pram about it. Like, yeah, tonight's not okay. So, you know, today you did a shit one. And then, like, for that to be all right. And, like, you don't have to let your insecurity become this ugly thing. It can just be like, I think the show's a bit shit tonight. But that's, that's okay. So we'll get back to James for the concluding part of this podcast soon. But first, here are all the places I'm going to be on tour between February and June. Go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash tour to get tickets to see me in Leicester at the Criterion, Maidenhead, Norden Farm. I'll just do the towns. (laughs) 
Leicester, Maidenhead, Crawley, Hull, Liverpool, Manchester, Oxford, Dublin, Nottingham, Reading, Corsham, Machantleth, Bristol, Bath, Norwich, Northampton, Warwick, Coventry technically, Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury, Swindon, Farnham, Aldershot, Sheffield, York, Newcastle, or indeed Newcastle upon Tyne? It's Newcastle upon Tyne. I was getting confused with Hull, which is technically Hull something. Leeds, Southampton, Cambridge, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Birmingham, Brighton, London, Tring and Cardiff. That's where I'm going to be. And listen, it's so heartwarming when I release details of the tour to hear people excited that I'm coming to their town. And it's so uh, lovely and joyous to hear people angrily tweeting at me that I'm a bastard for not coming to EG Fife. Listen, I've got nothing against Fife. I'd love to come to Fife. Fife's an example. No one's asked me to come to Fife. But if you want to come to me, if you want me to come to your place and you live somewhere that is not somewhere that I'm currently gigging on this tour, I'll come. Just get together minimum 50 friends, absolute minimum 50 people who are prepared to pay and prepared to commit to it. In fact, as long as they're prepared to pay, they then don't have to turn up. But I'd be nice if 10 of you turned up. 50 paying people, get that together and I'll bloody come to Fife. I've got nothing against Fife. Uh, but there are, of course, the London dates have just got out and it's the first time they've been confirmed. So the first time I'm mentioning them uh, in this two-parter, it's the 21st, 22nd and 23rd of June this year. I'm at the Soho Theatre in London, so please get in quick for that. That's already selling pleasingly quickly. So you will remember, over Christmas I gave away a thousand of my albums, but if you missed out on the big giveaway, you can get one for fiver or even more if you want to swank about your workplace, silently considering yourself a super donor at comedianscomedian.bandcamp.com. That's comedianscomedian.bandcamp.com. If you love this podcast but hate listening to actual comedy, or if you if you got a free album, if you were one of the thousand that got them for free, and you want to show your gratitude, you can, of course, donate with a monthly subscription or a one-off slam dunk of a payment at comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. And remember, if you are a an absolute hyper nerd <laughs> or possibly a professional comedian, you can access a further 45 minutes. If, like, two hours ten wasn't enough for you, then you can get stuck into another 45 minutes of extra material at comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras in which James and I discuss James's relationship with criticism, how he feels about the impact that he's having on newer acts. I, for one, keep seeing his mannerisms and occasionally even his trousers here and there. Uh, We talk about guilt, religious and otherwise. And I also, there's a lovely bit, I remind James of a very useful bit of advice he once gave me. And then he says some really nice stuff about this podcast that I'm very proud of, but to which I did not want to subject the casual listener. Comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras for all of that stuff. Now, at last, back to James. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Your joke writing ability is so good. And to briefly come back to the psychology, I remember talking to you a couple of years ago about how sometimes you were a bit surprised by other comics' reactions to you. And I remember saying at the time, no, 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 that's that's because they take for granted that you're a fucking genius at this. 
Do you remember that conversation? Uh, there was a thing whereby you were like, why has that person said that? Why have they behaved like that? That seems a bit of a mean way to deal with my feelings. And oh, I was yeah. saying to you, no, no, that's, that's because they absolutely oh, take yeah. for granted that, that you have this status, this authority that maybe you recognise a bit more now, but that has been there for a while, whereby it, like, you're not just another comic. You know, people love what you do and are inspired by what you do and have that same feeling that, that we often... On this podcast, we in the community often talk about that thing of when you watch Daniel Kitson and you go simultaneously, Jesus, look at what's possible, and Arthur, oh, fuck's sake, why am I bothering? People feel that about you and your joke writing. Right. That's not <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, cool. <laughs> I don't mean, I mean, I'll just, I'll just say, uh, it's... Yeah, I'm... I, I mean, I'm if that, yeah, I'm delighted if that's true. I mean, but I, I, I always kind of feel like, so for, you know, I'm sure there's some, there's, there'll be some comics listening to this now and going, fuck it, no, I'm not. But like, uh, and I, so I don't want to be like, you know, oh yeah, great. Like, yeah, of I course. don't know. I, 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 I kind of guess I'm, uh, yeah, I'm not as aware of that, I guess. Sure. Probably people don't bother saying it to you. You, no, you, are, you aren't present in conversations where people go, fucking hell, he's, that bit where he goes, blah, 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 you know, that kind of Sure. Thing. And uh, also, though, like, I don't know, I kind of, I see around me so many people that I feel like that about in comedy and I watch. And, like, there's so many, I think, you know, most comics I gig with, have bits like that where I'm like, oh, that was amazing. I tell other people about it and I, and I like it. And so, yeah, I think it's, I don't know, it's always just felt part of what we all do together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, well, that, it that, is. You know, it absolutely is. It and getting... In terms of the amount of things, which, like, I can certainly think of comics where I'm like, you know, there are the people like John Kearns and mm. Daniel Kitson who you kind of go, oh, I couldn't, or Simon Munner, and you go, I couldn't think like that. Yeah, Do you yeah. mean I couldn't? I, yeah. I, they're very distinct, very distinct voices. And then there are people who you go, oh, that guy's bit about, or that woman's bit about that mm. is, oh, my God, the way she just gets that subject. And like, oh, great. Or I think of like Kerry Godleyman's terms and conditions bit. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or just yeah, a bit, yeah. you go, oh, that bit. It just makes you laugh yeah, to think yeah. about it. Um, but... With you, I think there is such a wealth of things that you have got every possible angle out of something that was already a brilliant choice to talk about. Do you know what I mean? The Mariachi bit or the, the fact of the, the Chilean miners and, you know, the showbiz secrets of the Chilean miners or, Jesus, any of it, Torville and Dean, apples to an orchard. Do you know what I mean? You, you have created a body of work, which now, fortunately, thanks to Netflix, everyone will be able to access. Um each bit of which has, you have poured over it. You're single-minded. You do work harder than most people I know. And I, let's talk about that work and about how you get the most from an idea. But last time you were on the show, we talked about you, um, uh, the difference in writing, writing things down, stopping writing things down. Mm-hmm. Going on to that, where are you with writing things down at the moment? Don't really do it. You don't, don't really, really do it. That's make incredible. Notes. To I make notes on my phone. Okay. Record the shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there are turns of phrase that are particularly good, I tend to remember them more than because like, it's like if it's good enough, I'll remember it. 
Uh, but sometimes I'll write, you know, write the turn of phrase down in my phone, but often that can be like a curse and then it stops working. <laughs> yes, I'm, yeah, I'm okay. always doing the deliberate delivery of it. Um, so I don't write down as much now. I used to, like my, you know, my, when I started out in stand-up, I think one of the most fun things about being an open spot is that you immediately get to pretend to be a comedian. Because, like, you know, you've just started doing it. And so you're, you're <laughs> a comedian now. The only yeah. time I ever said to people I was a stand-up comedian was when I was an open spot. Because, yeah. like, I wanted people to know that about me. I'd be yeah. on a train. They'd be like, you know, where are you coming from? I'm just doing a stand-up comedy gig, so I'm a stand-up <laughs> comedian. And, I, and, and I'd always have my notebook. I loved having a notebook. I loved writing in it and having all these ideas and just reading it, but not even to, like... Um, work on it was more to really like go for it and go, I'm, a com- I'm a comedian because <laughs> they just look at all the all the ideas you've got and you know, write the set lists down and all stuff like that and um when I started doing solo shows that became more organized and more productive and like you know especially the second solo show I did which was um basically a, that was the most amount of routines where I've like wrung stuff out of it and they're all pre- pretty much most of that show is in this fourth Netflix show it's all these like routines that are about five minutes each and it's one subject and just wring everything out of it. And I was really obsessed with that that year and loads of writing. You know, I, I, I didn't feel any pressure on me. My first show had done well ticket sales wise, but very mixed reviews and no like, you know, awards thing or anything after that. So I felt like no pressure to go back to your second show. And so I was just writing all the time and really enjoying like physically writing it all down and trying to come up with more and more angles and hitting dead ends and then like finding believing that there was an ending that you know, there, there is something beyond it you know you haven't hit a dead end there's you're uncovering a dinosaur skeleton in the in the sand and you just got to keep on going the rest of it's here you're just in the wrong place at the minute so just keep on and having faith that it was all there and then that third show was the Yoko Ono one that's said earlier and that was I've been nominated the previous year and that was the only time I got that in my head that now people don't expect more from you, which they didn't, but like it was in my head that they would. And I was writing down all, and I was also trying to do the same type of show. So I was like, everything has to be like a five minute routine where you wring everything out of every single bit. And I couldn't do it. I was, I had these, now I know that they're routines that were, they were good short jokes. And that's the joke because you've actually, there's not that much in them, and you've been more economic of your language so that a big laugh comes in early on, and that's the punchline. You can't do anything more. That's all you can do with it. But I was trying. You know, I had this you know, routine about uh, wanting to uh, own an ice cream van and own an ice cream business. I wanted that to be a five-minute bit because I was like, why can't I come up with anything? I was you know, going on stage and trying all these extra lines that weren't working, go home and try it again, type on the computer, put it in my notebook, go to a gig and just couldn't make it work. And what the show turned into instead was like, the first half is all these short routines, and the second half is all about Yoko Ono, but in this kind of like fantasy land. And it's a very transitional show in that respect. But like, I didn't... I I, I wasn't trying to write that show. I was trying to write a different show, and I ended up writing that, and not enjoying it, not enjoying Edinburgh... Edinburgh went well, but then I was like, well, what's the point in Edinburgh going well? Because you hated it. And so the next year, I deliberately didn't write anything down. And it was all just like 
do stuff that you just find inherently funny, the stuff that you just think is funny, and none of it's a chore to go on stage. And, and if it's a short bit, it's a short bit. If it's a long bit, it's a long bit. And just be okay with that and um, and enjoy, enjoy it more and, and let it be more coming from you and who you are and what you find funny and the kind of show you want to watch because you didn't want to watch last year's show, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that was much more fun that that style of writing and like just knowing that not everyone was going to like it but it didn't matter and uh you know I, I, I just like I just knew that I wanted to kneel down at the start and I, I wanted to do that Torval and Dean beginning but I didn't know what the material was yet but I just knew that Torval and Dean started their ice routine kneeling down so that I'm going to do that with my show and I want to say I'm an undercover cop so I'm just going to do it and I want to wear this jacket that I found on stage I'm going to start wearing that and it was all more just like stuff that would be fun and then and then that that year was when I tried to I was a lot more um, I was choosing my language a lot more carefully than I had done in previous shows so in the pre- previous show I knew what I didn't like about the writing process but I knew that one of the jokes so there's a joke where if I'd chosen just a different word it wouldn't have worked about um about uh, Oaxaca and them, everyone's stealing their spoons. If you bring a spoon back, you get a free taco. And I said, you know, I imagine the tacos have been interfered with beyond, beyond belief. belief. Yeah. yeah, And I knew that that was just a funnier one. You know, if I'd worded that differently, it wouldn't have worked. Beyond yes. belief is, yes. is the funny bit. Interfered, interfered with, with it is, is very is good funny as well. As well. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, so the next show kind of, because, yeah, going back a bit, but, like, basically, my first show, I wasn't happy with it after I'd done it, but I liked a routine that I had about a cheese grater where I talked about a cheese grater for five minutes. And so I wanted my next show to be the cheese grater show. I wanted the, the show to be a bunch of five-minute routines where I talk about a small thing for five minutes because I liked that routine, mm. and that's the bit I liked, so I'll do that for a whole show. And then my third show I didn't like, but I liked that bit of wording. And I was like, I'm going to do that for a whole show. So the whole show, I'm going to make sure that they're full of those kind of that kind of language. Um, you know, choosing my words carefully so that I can make things funnier than they maybe are. And uh, that was mainly what I enjoyed about that show. I didn't write anything down; it all stuck in my head a bit more because there were terms of phrase that I liked and enjoyed and uh, thought painted a more. And it was just, it was just so much more fun to write it, like that kind of. Um, that delight that, like, hanging out with someone like Nish or Ed Gamble or, you know, people like that who absolutely absolutely love stand-up comedy and you go and watch shows with them and the way that they respond to certain lines that comedians have that maybe aren't even the audience's favourite line, but they love the fact that they chose that reference. Of all the references they could, you know, like the comic will reference a soft drink, and of all the soft drinks they could have referenced, that's the funniest one yeah. to reference. Yeah. And seeing that when you with Nish or, or Ed, both of them have big laughs, and they really own it, and they enjoy it so much, and you're like, yeah, that's like, I want to write this kind of stuff that's like, you know, I was staying with Nish and Ed while writing that show. Uh, I stayed with them for a month, um... Because I just you know, moved out my girlfriend, you know, moved, moved out of my place with my girlfriend, and they let me move straight in with them, and like yeah, you kind of bond over a sense of humour and stuff like that, 
and just definitely wanting my next show to be full of those kind of lines that people would quote a bit more afterwards, maybe. Um, whereas I didn't feel like that was the case as much in my other ones. Um, and I kind of, again, it's like the, the next show I'm probably feeling a bit more... Um, while I liked the end product, I'd say the journey to it was a bit more... It was kind of the opposite of um, what I had in my third show, and I was trying to deliberately write... I was trying to write the same thing again, and I couldn't. And then with Represent, I was almost trying to write a different thing, and ended up going, oh, no, you, you want to write this, so write this. You want, you want to write the same show again, or the same style of show again, so just do the same style of show. And then going... It's not okay, you know, and then build on those things you did before. Like, you know, um, I tried to work on my performance a lot more with them, but like, yeah. And, and, then, and then the third show is more the third show of the three, so my sixth show, uh, was I felt the most in control of my writing, of like actually using the skills that I got from writing the second show and rinsing stuff and wringing everything out of a routine. I started doing that again uh, while also putting in terms of phrase, uh, phrases that I liked and incorporating that. But I think... I think my... The main thing about writing, I'd say, is just not forcing it and running with the things that you are enthusiastic about and want to write about. And then the writing is just much... It's just much better it's richer it's more fun for the audience to hear and every time i've tried to force myself to do something it's turned out i've hadn't liked it i've not, not been happy with it but like um every time i've just been like you know when i was a kid and i was being creative around the house and i was naturally drawn to creative things it was because it was fun and i wanted to do it and i could you know write a short story with no, no it was i wasn't going oh, i've got to do that short story today i better get around to doing it and then mm-hmm. put you know and and just remembering that, like, this is where it all comes... The reason why I'm doing this as a job actually isn't because I wasn't given enough attention as a child or something awful. It's because I always enjoyed it. I just enjoyed doing these creative things. It was how I entertained myself a lot of the time. You know, we didn't, weren't really big on... You know, my parents weren't big on having the TV on and stuff, and so I had to entertain myself. And I really enjoyed putting on a play, you know, doing some drawing, whatever it was. And it comes from enjoying it. It comes from... It doesn't come from it being, um, oh, you've got to do this, otherwise everyone's going to think you're not, your show's not as good as it was last year and all that, which is what I put on, on myself once. Um, so, yeah, the writing just comes from, like, what do you enjoy, what do you want to hear, and just do it. You know, I, I, I want to do this long routine where I, I rinse everything out of it. And also, it's uh, intuition, how much there is in the routine, what it needs... Like I said earlier, that, that thing of enjoying getting under the hood and fixing it and being like, this isn't finished yet, this bit, and it needs something else, but what is it? Because I, I'm not, you know, so far I haven't... You try a bunch of different things and they don't fit. It doesn't quite work. Um, and not getting frustrated with that. I never find that frustrating. I always find it quite fun. That They're the gigs I enjoy a lot. Like it's going, well, my, my aim for this gig is you try this new bit out. You try this new line and if it works, if it doesn't work, it's helpful. Um, so, so much of it is trial and error. Do you find that you have moments of feeling negative during the writing process? Like, I find sometimes mm. if I go, right, I'm going to sit in a cafe and write for two hours, mm. 
part of me is looking forward to it. And part of me is feeling like I know I'll be satisfied afterwards. Sometimes it feels like going for a run where you're yeah. just like, I just don't want to do this, but I have yeah. to. And then afterwards you're like, yeah. Sometimes I find I am put off writing because of the fear of being in the shitty place where nothing is coming. Yeah. Well, so I don't, because that's probably why I don't sit down and write now. Like that second year, that second show, sorry. I found it so easy to sit down and write and I looked forward to it and it was fun and I couldn't wait to like, you know, extend this bit or, you know, improve that bit. Third year, it was all stress. It was all sitting. And my, my life in general that year was stressful. I was living in a tiny flat with uh, a girlfriend who'd fallen out of love with me. It wasn't nice. So like, you know, I was stressed out anyway and trying to follow up this show, which in my head was a much bigger deal than it was, you know. So like, I just didn't enjoy that sitting down and writing and I definitely would dread sitting down and doing it and I would look at the screen and be like why can't you come this is like you know once again you're staring at this routine again and you still haven't fixed it and why can't you make it better um and I just never want to go through that again um and so a lot of my writing's done on stage now and I can completely hack in a work in progress, the failure aspect of it. It's still hard. Right now I'm doing work in progress is for a show that doesn't even have to be ready for... I'm not going to Edinburgh next year. I'm not touring next year. I, I just want to... I want my next tour show to be a good tour show that's two 45-minute sections that are as good as each other and not an Edinburgh show stretched out. Mm. So I'm doing work in progress already. And they're not all enjoyable. And some of them are, you know... I feel like I'm taking myself outside of my comfort zone in them and it doesn't feel nice on stage and I'm sharing more than I usually would and it's not a nice experience. About your actual emotional Yeah, life. yeah. I'm starting from a different place this time. It might end up somewhere, somewhere completely different, but I just feel the impulse at the minute is to just see, take yourself out of your comfort zone and try and talk about uh, actual stuff and actual feelings and thoughts and see how that feels and maybe I'll completely change it, but... It's the when I started out, Josie Long said, you know, just experiment as much as you can. She said on the open mic circuit before anyone can judge you. But I I feel like extend that for it. You know, it's continually if you want to write a new show, they're not supposed to judge you in your work in progress anyway. Go out there, try everything. So yeah. And that can get I don't get like frustrated really. It's it's just you just go, Oh, this is um like I've had some I've had two that have felt extremely unpleasant because I felt so out of my comfort zone. And when people don't laugh, when I'm being very open and vulnerable, it feels horrible. And yes. I come away from the gig feeling horrible and feeling like oh, embarrassed. And they're going to talk about that to each other. Are they worried that I'm okay? Because you know, I made myself because I was only focusing on the bad things that have happened to me this year. I made myself sound like I'm completely, you know, yeah. I'm probably not all right. Yeah, that's a whole other you know? raft of issues when you do talk about your actual life. I talk about my actual life all the mm. time. I've had times when I've, uh, I kind of haven't, I haven't got across that I'm fine and the audience have gone, oh. Yeah, And yeah. I'm like, well, don't ah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, all times when I've been talking about my wife and the challenges of the compromises of, of married life mm. where people haven't really gone for it and I felt I've come away thinking, I think they... I think they thought I was just slagging off my brilliant wife. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That, and that is a weird kind of like I shared yeah. a thing. Yeah. I think that's a big part of the writing definitely is, is just knowing how it comes, putting yourself in the audience's shoes. I think it's a huge part of it. The empathy. 
how you would feel in the audience listening to that routine, what you would take away from it, what are they laughing at? Are they laughing at the right thing or am I making them laugh at my wife? And it's a misogynistic routine when it's actually meant to be yeah. the opposite to that. So I need to change my wording. I need to, you know. And also, like, I feel with the writing as well, it's a lot of the time a routine works. It's fine. And the audience always laugh at it. But I don't want to be doing that sort of stuff. You just go, yeah, that's the kind of story I don't want to... You know, I, had, I, had a, I had a true story in that second show. I had a bunch of routines that were all, you know, observational bits, really, about, or, or silly bits that focus on one thing, and then this true story out of nowhere in there. The true story would always work, but I kind of... I remember doing a Happy Mondays preview and coming up and saying to Holly Walsh, Something, I'm not sure about that story. And she went, yeah, take it out, because it, it's not... It doesn't fit in with anything else. She mm. said, you, she said it's a... It's a True story. I'm sure you can use it somewhere, but like not in this, not in this show. Like it just doesn't. Even though it works, it changes the tone of it. And I think that's with writing, being really aware of the tone of your act as well, and like, and that helps with the writing of it as well. But like, you know, this hour is about this, and this routine actually doesn't have a place there. And if mm-hmm. I take it out, the show will be better for it, even though the routine works. And if it, if it works, you'll find a place. Yeah, you know, that, that routine, that true story, went in, it's in the book and it's one of the scripts. So, like, you do something with it eventually. Your career will hopefully be long enough that you'll be able to use all these bits, but use them at the right times. Get, get them when they're going to have the most impact. Be the funniest. You don't have to panic and put them all into this show. If you're trying to... It, I always feel like when you're trying to create this show... It just that's when it does get desperate and a scramble and it doesn't make sense. Whereas, you know, I mean, I'm sure everyone. This will be the most pretentious thing I've said, but like it's it's more that you're discovering the show rather than you're writing it. So it's like you know, it's already almost this belief that it's already there. And so when you're watching a show, I find from watching it, and I the sense of if it's not finished, you, you kind of, as an audience member, no matter who you are, as an audience member, you kind of, there's a sense of what it should have been, and what it should be, and that there's those bits missing, and, you know, even though the person hasn't written it yet, you go, no, there's, this is the best, you kind of know when it feels right, the best version of that show, and um, I think just to keep on going with the writing until, you go, oh, that's, that's that routine or that's where that routine should go and that's how I should phrase it. And, um, it should be this long, it should be shorter. You know. all, the, all those things, I always feel like they're already there and, you, and you're finding them and going, oh yeah, of course, that's where that should be and that's where that should be. I never feel like I'm there forcing them in where they, you know, trying to, trying to force something. It reveals itself at some point, I think. Um without wanting to sound too much like a wanker. Now that you are without agent, without yeah. portfolio, massive Netflix thing is about to drop. No Edinburgh this year coming, 2018. Uh-huh. What What do you want? What do you want next? Um, yeah, I just... I think just to keep on... Again, it's like it comes back to that REM thing of like, you know, they just kept on doing whatever, you know, as long as they wanted to do it, kept on doing it. So as long as there are things that I still want to do, I'll 
carry on doing those things. So, like, I never really have thought very far ahead with comedy. I've always thought just about, you know, like, you know, the next year. And, like, it's been like, you know, this is... These are the projects I've got on the go. I want to do those projects. And so you just kind of see them through and maybe other things pop up. But, like, I don't really... I've never been one of those people who's like, I want to play this type, this size venue one day. I want to, you know... Uh, share a stage with these people. I want a sitcom. I want that, or whatever it is. They've never, never had a list of ambitions like that. Now that I've done these Netflix things, I know that that is something I definitely want to do again. And that the main thing I enjoy about stand up is having a, a show filmed and that I can show people. And because I used to enjoy recording music so much, and it feels like that again. It feels like I'm, you know. I'm able to have a lot more control about how um, how the person views it, you know, camera angles, colour grading, you know, making it look good. I love really getting into every single aspect of it and then having this finished product of that's the show, that's what I've worked on, and there it is. Everyone can look at it now. Um, and... I just want to do that more. I'm writing this new show at the minute. I'm enjoying... I'm only doing it because I'm enjoying it. I don't... You know, I absolutely could understandably just have a year of not writing at all now and not need to come out with another show. But I'm doing it because I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying talking about different things on stage. I feel like I'm challenging myself in a different way. I think that's the thing of going forward as well, just making sure constantly challenging myself with my with what I'm doing because that's fun that's enjoyable it's, it's it makes the whole thing uh something worth engaging in and uh that's really the the long-term plan is keep on trying to get better keep on trying to improve and uh and then hopefully at the end of each chapter film it and go there it is and then on to the next thing thanks man so that was james acaster returning to the show such a pleasure to talk to him he is you can learn so much from james he is such a hard-working original he's such a pure comedian pure copping as acaster thank you to james for coming along um the logger for this episode was ryan coles thanks ryan thank you to nathan wood who edited it and hey listen i want to just publicly shout this out for anyone that that uh that didn't download the 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 compared to what album um rob smouten did the music for it and i just want to publicly make that aware obviously it says that in the credits of the album rob smouten is uh of the band's uh grosvenor this is deliberately spelt wrong, Grosvenor, I assume he pronounces it Grosvenor, uh, Black Peaches, and he's also in Hot Chip, and he's a, a fan of this show and a friend of mine now, and we, uh, he very kindly, I managed to to get him to do some music, so he's he did music that kind of um, bookends the album compared to what, and at the end of it, I just play the whole track all the way through. I've never uh, been donated such a complete, in-depth, layered piece of music before, various musicians dan melrose did the the theme tune for the show and did it brilliantly steve dunn did all the stuff for break glass those were all great this is something else 
So if you would like an exclusive track from Rob, then uh, you'd get, get download the album compared to what from comedianscomedian.bandcamp.com and literally fast forward through an hour and then you can hear the entire track that he made for me and it's just wonderful. So thank you so much to Rob. Um, all of the extra stuff from this episode, comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras. Uh, all of the tour stuff at forward slash tour. And did you miss me over January? I missed you. I'm having a wonderful honeymoon. It's just nuts. I'll tell you all about it. I won't. I'll I'll distill some amusing things that happened and tell you in a future post amble. But when we get back, uh, I, I'm gonna the conclusion of the honeymoon. I'm I'm working at the uh, the Christchurch World Buskers Festival here in New Zealand, doing stand up. Uh, not busking, sadly, but uh, very happily meeting up with some of the old guard. And the point is, when I get back in the real world, we've got some great episodes in the can coming up. Ola the comedian, Jonathan Pye, Colin Holt. Oh, fuck off! I love it. Uh, Anne Edmonds and Julio Torres. I've still got that left over from Edinburgh. It's so good. I was just, I was just clinging onto it so no one else would hear it but me. But I will play it to you. It's brilliant. And um, so, if you're excited about that, please subscribe to the show, review it on your podcast app. That's useful if you if you're on iTunes in a, a country that isn't the UK, or if you're on, you know, Podcast Addict or Castbox or whatever else. Chuck a review on it. That, that probably helps it make it visible. Like the show, share the show, click on it, cut and paste it, carve it out of driftwood, marry it, and take it to fucking New Zealand. Then start having very treacherous thoughts about emigrating with it. Good day to you.